short time to get there. What we gonna do what they say can't be done. Yeah, you might have to cut that off before you put it online. Or you can leave it. Whatever. <laughs> okay, so I just want to remind you, notes are available. If you didn't get a chance to get the notes, there's probably, I don't even know, 50 pages-ish um, of, of outlines and notes that I did working our way up to the point where we're at. That your, uh, Levi made copies, but he's in the concert, so I'm not sure where he left them. If you're interested in them, look for the bald guy. Uh, maybe on Sunday or something, holler at him and he can hook you up, hopefully with some of those things. Um, last week, we did watch a, a video on textual transmission and uh, textual criticism on the reliability of the New Testament by Dr. James White. I have that uh, video on a on thumb drive um, on my computer, so it's also on YouTube, so it's uh, you can always do a search to watch it or go back over it if you wanted to to get some more of that information. I also encourage, uh, if you just want to have kind of a cursory concept or idea of textual uh, transmission and textual criticism, uh, Dr. James White's book, um, The King James Only Controversy, does a pretty good job of working its way through that. Of course, it's written from the point of view of dealing with uh, King James onlyism and some of the struggles with that, but but how he deals with it is dealing with textual criticism. So, um, the the other books that I have are way more technical than that, so um, they may be more of a struggle to kind of go through. So I, I thought that book was a good uh, get a grasp of what what this is all about textual transmission and textual criticism. Uh, just by way of of a brief, hopefully, <coughs> review of where we've been uh, and where we're going. We talked about uh, the, the concept of our apologetic, right? First, we want to be able to set apart the Lord, uh, or Jesus Christ as Lord in our hearts, and then to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us in the spirit of meekness and fear. So we want to have the right attitude as we provide answers. And the big key Starts at the beginning, right? I got to set apart Jesus Christ as Lord in my heart. I, I need to, to place him in that place. So I need to lay the foundations of that before we're ready to jump into developing arguments, which is the part everybody wants to go to. Um, but if we get there too fast, we're not going to be able to develop the kind of arguments we need because we don't have the foundation because we haven't set apart uh, Jesus as Lord in our heart. So we talked about... Uh, Principium. Principium is just another way of saying our foundational principles. And uh, two principles. You have the principium ascendi, the essential uh, foundation that everything's built on. Our ultimate authority of all is God Almighty. Uh, then the next principium is principium cognoscendi. <clears throat> that's our, uh, that's how, where God has condescended to reveal himself to us. As we talk about the attributes of God... In the doctrine of God, which is where we're headed to, as we talk about those attributes of God, um, a lot of those things are going are to overlap and cover, but we're going to talk about the fact that God is incomprehensible. Apart from God revealing himself to his creation, his creation would not know him. Now, I'm talking about the, the fact that, that there is general revelation, that man can 
recognize that there is a God just by looking around, that's because God condescended. That's because God put those things there. Because God reaches to us. Uh, and so that the way that, that God comes down, there's, uh, there's probably six ways. I think they all interweave and kind of touch on each other. But six ways that God condescends to us to reveal himself to us. He does it through words. So we have the words he spoke through the, through the prophets and through the word of God, right? Through the Bible. A lot of these things are going to overlap too. But uh, he does it through word. He does it through titles. The titles, different titles about God. The Father, he's a king, he's a shepherd. Those all reveal something about who God is. It's, it's a way that God reveals himself. Of course, the majority of all of these are, are contained within the word of God itself. But I just want you to kind of, kind of think about the ideas of how God condescends through titles. He condescends through attributes. In other words, when we, when we begin to recognize his attributes, his characteristics, his traits, that helps us understand more about God and understand more about who he is. He, uh, he condescends through images. He says, I am a, uh, I'm a consuming fire. Right? That doesn't mean that he's actually flame. What's he doing? He's giving us an image to describe some of the characteristics and traits and attributes of God. Again, these, these kind of lay over one another and overlap, but hopefully it gives us the idea. In the Psalms, he's called the rock. The rock of our salvation. The strong tower. Right? Those are images to help us relate to what God's like. Also, he does it through names. Uh, multiple names throughout the Old Testament and New Testament describing to us, again, what God's like. Uh, and then finally, through what he does, how he, uh, the works he does, the judgments he brings, um, the, the commands that he gives, uh, the works of redemption, all of those things are ways that God condescends to us. And the primary way that we, that we see those things is through God's Word. The Word of God becomes... That's why that's our principium cognoscendi. That's our anchor of truth. That's what we hold to. So, so the Word of God is what we what we got to hold to. And the Word of God, as such, is going to be the most attacked thing by every cultism that's out there. Number one attack. Why? Because the devil knows that that is your ultimate authority. And as your ultimate authority, if I take that out, you have nothing to stand on. So that's where the attacks are going to come from. So we, we spent some time in the doctrine of Scripture. We spent some time talking about canon. I'm not going to build uh, all those concepts again. I just want to kind of point to some of the things that we, that we said. First, we, de- we kind of define canon. Canon is a natural development from the first century apostles. And it's part of God establishing the new covenant. Therefore, it is early. And it follows what's called the intrinsic model. So the canon's not a 4th century creation. The canon is something that starts, remember we talked about this, as the apostles finished writing, the canon, they said they were writing scripture, they knew they were writing scripture. And so the canon of scripture begins uh, as they set down the pen, as they send the letter off to the churches. That begins the development of the canon. The canon develops over time. Uh, all those are principles that we talked about. We worked our way through. Remember, we talked in support of that concept that the New Testament springs out of the eschatological nature of early Christianity. What do I mean by that? Eschatological, last things. 
Uh, that's what eschatological means, the, the study of last things. So, so New Testament Christianity saw what Jesus Christ did in his redemption, his death, burial, and resurrection, and then his um, uh, giving of the, of the command to go, therefore, and make disciples to send people out. We saw that as the completion of a promise that was left hanging in the Old Testament. If we come to the conclusion of the Old Testament, what we see at the end of the Old Testament, there's a, a king coming, but he's not here. There's currently no king in Israel when the Old Testament is finished and for 400 years there's silence and no prophet. Where's the king? Where's the Messiah? Jeremiah told us there was a new covenant, a new promise coming, but it's not here. God said he would write his word in our hearts and in our lives and he would do something new where his spirit would be poured out on all flesh, we, we were left expecting that to occur. So that when the, when the early Christians who are all Jewish see Jesus Christ come fulfilling, establishing, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? The whole concept of saying, this is the, the culmination of the story that we've been waiting for. That means that the New Testament, the new covenant, the books and the scripture would naturally spring out of the fulfillment of what was left anticipated in the old. That it would be put together and it would be developed uh, through the apostles as they worked their way through. The idea that the Old Testament was a story written in search of a conclusion and the New Testament brings that together. So then we talked about if the Bible is our ultimate authority... It must therefore be self-authenticating. Any other authentication higher or over the Bible makes that the ultimate authority, not the Bible. If the church authenticates the Bible, then the church is the authority. Does that make sense? So if the Bible is our authority, then it's, it's got to self-authenticate. And so we describe how, how self-authenticating works. We said there had to be providential exposure. That means that the church had to have had exposure throughout time to, to this book, to these books. So that's what we see with the New Testament laying down before you. That's been, that's been available to the church from the first century to today. The church has been exposed to it. It can't be something that the church was never exposed to. Okay, so it's got to be something that, that there was exposure in order for it to have uh, value for the church. The church is not just us, right? The church is the church throughout time, from the time of Christ to today. Then it had to have attributes of canonicity. What were the attributes of canonicity we talked about? Had to have divine qualities. We talked about several divine qualities, things that we look for within the text. Uh, it had to have the, or show the beauty and excellency of the scripture. We talked about the efficacy and the power of Scripture. We talked about the unity and the harmony of Scripture, how it's built after the covenantal model. So we see these things as fingerprints or divine qualities. It had to have corporate reception. One of the things we talked about is that the New Testament, very early in the 1st and 2nd century, the majority of the New Testament was already being bound together in codices, books, that contained all of Paul's writings to include Hebrews. Remember, we talked about that. kind of interesting. All four of the Gospels together, the book of Revelation, the general epistles, all of these things were being bound together as books, first and second century. We have them 
in the early papyri, in the early evidence of the papyri. Um, and we also have in that concept of, of uh, corporate reception the, the rule of faith. Look, the rule of faith that we look to is the early creeds that sprang out of the early church fathers in the first and second century. So you have early church fathers who are writing creeds that develop um, doctrine from, what is it coming from? It's coming from those codices, those books, the New Testament books that are being passed around. We have those rules of faith through uh, early, early church. I'm not talking about the, the later creeds, like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. They have earlier creeds even than that. They start to lay out those concepts where you can see while the Word of God was having an effect on the church even then. So you see the corporate reception. So we've got divine qualities, corporate reception. And the third thing that we talked about in terms of our attributes of canonicity was apostolic origins. They, all the books had apostolic origins. They, they carry with them the fingerprints of the eyewitnesses. Over and over again in the epistles, we see that phrase. We're not writing you cunningly devised uh, fables, but eyewitness accounts. We were there. We saw. We we were a part. We touched. We felt. We ate. And so you have that eyewitness account that works its way through. Apostolic origins are important. And when we talked about that, and if you look through the notes, you'll see it. Uh, several scriptures where the apostles knew that they were given specific responsibility to write out the new covenant requirements, what God was looking for from his church as he, as he manifests that new covenant, as he bestows that new covenant on the church. Those things would be in. So that's a, an attribute of canonicity that we see in the, in the New Testament. The stuff that we have land in front of us. From the first century forward. We talked about that. The last thing in terms of the self-authenticating canon is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. There's a concept, and it's something that's going to come up for us over and over again in our apologetic. And that is the, the noetic effects of sin. That sin affects our entire being. Um, and part of that that we don't often consider is our reasoning. Man's reasoning is affected by sin. And so the Holy Spirit has to overcome the noetic effects. The Holy Spirit has to open our eyes, right? That's why the Bible says that the Word of God is, is spiritually discerned, spiritually understood. Not natural man, but spiritual man. Now, the Holy Spirit is able to do that work, right? That's God's work. That's God opening up our eyes. That's God allowing people to see what's going on. So all of those things, seeing that effect taking place in our New Testament helps us understand that the canon began when they wrote it. It went out to the church. It had a stamp of approval from the church in the 4th century but it had always be, been seen as canon prior to that. It had always been seen as the rule. Then what we did after we talked about that is we talked a little bit about uh, textual criticism. And I know um, Kathy was confused and maybe some others were confused by, by textual criticism. So I'll try to give a quick uh, overview of the concept. But basically textual criticism is this. Look, we have more textual evidence for the Bible than any other book Period. Any other ancient book. We have more. And what that vast horde of text does for us is it enables us to look 
from first century through 18th century and say, hey, do, do these agree? And if they don't agree, why don't they agree? Is it homeoteleton? Is it this similar endings? Do we see where the scribes skipped the line? It's very easy to see. And if it is, then we, then we can make that adjustment and say, oh, here. So we know that in the text that we have that are laid out before us today, we can have a certainty that we have the Word of God. And that doesn't mean we're not going to have to do homework. and We're not going to have to do work to, to figure out what it is and what's going on and why something wasn't there or, or what. When you go through uh, textual commentaries, what you'll get, um, if there are textual issues with a particular verse, they grade it. So the textual critics, that's not a bad thing. Textual critics, not necessarily a bad person. A textual critic is somebody who looks at it and says, here's the evidence in all the text. Here's what they all say. Here's where they disagree. If it's just an issue of spelling, nobody cares about that. But if it's a, something bigger than that, they might say, this reading is a B. This reading is a C. Now, you don't have to go to school to know what that means, right? No, B sounds better than C, right? A would be better than B. The idea that the, the greater ponderance of, uh, of evidence shows that this is probably the best reading. But it gives it all to us so that we can fall back on. What was it that we fall back on in order to, to recognize and understand and hold fast to the Word of God? We have to have the Holy Spirit, right? We have to hold, have the Holy Spirit overcoming uh, the, the fallen nature within us, and the struggle in our own minds to comprehend and understand the Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. In all of that, okay, in all of those issues, remember we talked about 400,000 is basic, the basic number of textual issues, which initially sounds like three possible words for every word in the New Testament. But after you do a little bit of studying and digging into it, you find out really it's 1,500 uh, textual variants that matter. And of those 1,500 textual variants, they will change what the sentence says, but they do not touch a single doctrine in a church. It doesn't affect the Trinity. doesn't affect the essential doctrines of the church. But what it does do is it helps us have a certainty that we have contained in the Scripture the original writings that the apostles wrote. We have it. It's there. We just sometimes are going to have to dig, twist, and, and, and pull, and push to make sure that we're able to dig all that stuff out. So that's kind of a, a review of the doctrine of Scripture. Um, does anybody have any crazy questions that we want to wrestle with before I dive into the doctrine of God? You understand it all now? I feel like I'm on board. You're on board? Yeah, hearing it again. Okay, God's good. <clears throat> um, again... Feel free to call me anytime and we can continue to, to wrestle if we got questions or issues that we want to work our way through. We want to understand it. Don't feel bad if you don't. Um, Jason, I was talking to Jason today. He reminds me, you know, I spend most of the week studying for this uh, hour and a half lecture that I'm going to do. And you guys get uh, an hour and a half to hear it and try to digest it. And that's sometimes challenging. So. Yeah, so feel free, <laughs> feel free to, to holler at me. Okay, so we're going to do, for the rest of tonight, we're going to do an intro 
into the, the attributes of God. So what we have just talked about, all that stuff I just rehearsed, is our principium cognoscendi. It's our, it's our principle of truth. What is our principle of truth? The Word of God. Do we have reason to have certainty that the Word of God reveals truth to us? That it speaks for God to us? That it lays these things out for us? The two primary areas where you're going to be attacked on the concept that the Word of God can be your ultimate authority is a canon of Scripture and textual transmission. Those are the two things. If somebody says they're going to tell you the Bible's corrupt, what are they saying? Well, there's all these errors in the Bible. So you have to, you, you, you can have a defense. You have an answer. They may not accept the answer. That's up to them. It should not change that it's your ultimate authority. For the person that you're talking to, their ultimate authority might be their own brain. Is there any reason to assume that your own brain is more of an authority than the Bible? Come on. Can you be wrong? Yeah? Well, then you don't really know it, do you? So the concept that I'm my, if my ultimate authority is my own head and my own reasoning, that's a much uh, less stable than how God has condescended to us and revealed himself to us through his word. Now we're looking at the Principium Ascendi, the ultimate, God himself. We want to understand God himself. A lot of times when we're talking with people, they're going to use the same terms we use, right? If you're talking to somebody who's a Mormon, they're going to use the word Jesus. Do they mean the same thing? It's not the same person. They're going to use the word God. Do they mean the same thing when they say God? As I mean when I say God, when I say God, I'm talking about Yahweh. When they say God, they're talking about Elohim. Are those the same person? It's not the same person, same words. So we have to say our ultimate, the, 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 the top of the line for us is God Almighty. And so we have to have a concept. Who, who is God? And so I thought we would start with the attributes of God. We're going to take a look at, at the... Now, you can break out the attributes of God a thousand ways. <laughs> and I could probably do them simpler. And I might regret that I didn't. I don't know. But I want to try to give you as comprehensive a concept of God. Why is that going to matter? Because later on when you hear somebody say, well, God is like this. And you're, going to, you're going to remember prayerfully. You're going to remember, you know, one of the attributes of God uh, doesn't line up with what they're saying. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches about who God is. And then you recognize, you know, we're not talking about the same thing. We can be using the same words, but we're not saying the same thing. Right? A lot of people have a concept of salvation. One of the doctrines we'll talk about is salvation. How is somebody saved? Does everybody believe? Does, do the Jehovah Witnesses believe that you're saved the same way they're saved? Or do the Mormons believe the same doctrine of salvation? No, they use similar words, similar terms. Does not mean the same thing. So we need to have that foundation laid out for us. So we're going to break out the, the attributes to God, of God uh, into four categories. I got them on that intro to uh, the attributes of God. The non-moral attributes, which is a way of, of saying the metaphysical attributes of God. And in these attributes, don't think of them as they stand alone, because they don't stand alone. They overlap. Well, one leads to the other, leads to the other, leads to the other. Um, we're probably only going to talk about two tonight once we get through the, the, the intro to it. So, and if you have questions or you're struggling with those concepts, let me know. 
So first we have the non-moral attributes, okay, or the metaphysical attributes of God. They are at least the following things. That God is pure actuality and simplicity. Okay, by actuality I mean that He is absolute existence. By simplicity I mean that He is not divisible. You can't divide God into three parts. And we're going to talk about the Trinity later, but the Trinity is over and over again in Scripture described as how many God? One God, right? One. What is that saying? God is simple. You can't divide Him. You can't keep getting to a lower, more common denominator. You get what I'm saying? One. The simplicity of God means He's indivisible. The pure actuality of God is He's absolute existence. He can never not exist. There was never a time when he didn't exist. That's where the concept of pure actuality comes from. Uh, Second, his aseity and necessity. Aseity means that he is not caused by any other. You guys have heard of the uncaused cause, right? Some of those concepts in the cosmological argument that you get into when we talk about apologetics, where that springs forth from is through the attributes of God. And when we look at these attributes of God... These are not just uh, difficult vocabulary words or philosophical concepts. They all come forth from Scripture. It's one of the things we'll see when we look at the first two, uh, 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 actuality and simplicity tonight. A lot of Scripture that we're going to talk about, point two, to hopefully lay out. This is where these things spring forth. If it doesn't come out of the Word of God, it doesn't matter, right? My reasoning, that's, that's fallible. The Word of God, that's infallible. What God's Word says. He is not created. Yes. It could be. You can write that next to it. I can't always think about all the other things. <laughs> Sometimes they come to me. What was the word I did that you guys didn't like? Propiscuity? Purposcuity? It was a purposcuity. Which is clarity would have been maybe easier. Or plain would have been easier, but sometimes it doesn't come to my brain. Um, Third, we have his immutability and his eternality. Immutability means that he does not change. Eternality means that, again, the concept is that he has and will always exist. He exists everywhere and at all times. Uh, His impassibility is the idea that God is without passion. He doesn't flare hot and cold. He doesn't have mood swings. You don't pray and God is in a bad mood. He had a bad day that day, so He's going to take it out on you. That's the impassibility of God. And His infinity. We're going to talk about the immateriality, or the fact that God is spirit. Not material. He's immaterial. God is not material. He's immaterial. We're going to talk about his immensity. Huge, right? God fills all in all. Everywhere, every place, every time. Talk about his omnipotence and his omnipresence. The the fact that he is all-powerful and defining that will be important. We need to define it according to his traits and character. His omnipresence, that God is... All of God is everywhere all the time. Not a piece of God like a blanket. All of God is everywhere all the time. That's 
what scripture would lay out for us. His omniscience, that God knows everything. His wisdom in light. Is there any darkness in God? No darkness, no shadow of turning. His majesty, beauty, and, and ineffability. Or ineffability, I mean his incomprehensible. God is above our ability to comprehend. We will never, nor should we ever expect that we will utterly and completely understand God. All of God. The Bible teaches us over and over again that His ways are higher than our ways, right? That the distance between us and God is as high as the heaven over the earth. So there's a distance between us. Now, God being incomprehensible does not mean that He is unknowable. How is it that we know God? He condescends and reveals Himself to us. He comes down and shows us what He wants us to be able to grasp of Him. Are you with me? So we won't always, we won't answer it all. And we work our way through the attributes of God. We're going to rub our heads and we're going to go, wow. And how the implications of that are, are mind-boggling. But nonetheless, this is what Scripture teaches us that God is. We're going to talk about His life and immortality and His unity and triunity. These are called as metaphysical attributes, uh, the reality of God. But alongside that, we have non-moral characteristics. Non-moral characteristics. These involve how God in His attributes relates to us. How God relates to us. So how is that? Sovereignty. That He is over all. His transcendence. That He is above all. His imminence. That He is present within but distinct from. The concept of His imminence. That He is Always here, always with us, but, but he's not the tree, he's not the rock, he's not the grass. He's distinct from creation, but he's always in creation. Then we have, we'll talk about his, his omnipresence and, again, his incomprehensible, uh, incomprehensible uh, attributes. So, the idea is that without creation, God would have nothing to be sovereign over, transcendent above, or imminent in, or omnipresent to. So, because of creation... We see God, His attributes, worked out in creation these ways. Then we talk about His moral attributes. And you can argue for more. You could say there's seven or ten or fifty if you want to. But here's what we got. We have at least these six uh, basic. His holiness, His justice, His jealousy, His perfection, His truthfulness. His goodness, and in His goodness, I include His love. You could make His love its own category if you wanted to as well. Certainly, First John 4, uh, 7 and 8 tell us that God is love. So, so we know that that is part of His moral attributes. These are essential to God's nature. And then we have moral characteristics. <clears throat> so in addition to God's moral attributes, He has moral characteristics in relation to His creatures. Two of these would be mercy and wrath, which are activities that follow from or are rooted in his nature, but are not intrinsic to his nature as such. So these are, again, ways, moral characteristics, ways that God uh, establishes or works his moral attributes out in his creation. We'll talk about, we're going to go through them all, and we're going to talk about every one of them. So if you've got questions about them or whatever, just... 
write down, I got questions about this, and we'll, we'll come to it hopefully next week. Hopefully by next week I'll have gone through all of these. So that's my goal, because then I got to talk about the Trinity, and, and that, that could take it time all by itself. So we're going to hopefully work through all these next time. Now, <clears throat> in line with this, I want to talk briefly about the difference between the metaphysical and the metaphorical. So oftentimes when we struggle with concepts of the attributes of God, it is because of the battle between the metaphysical and the metaphorical. So metaphysical, uh, and I'll give you some examples as we work our way through it. But the metaphysical attribution is based on the way God actually is. It results from his efficient causality. It's like its cause. It is based in an intrinsic causal relation between an efficient cause and its effect. The metaphorical attribution of God is not the way God actually is. It's based on an extrinsic causal relationship. It is not like its cause. The metaphor helps us understand the metaphysical. The metaphysical sounds like big crazy words. The metaphorical sounds like poetry. What do I mean? Let's look at some examples that we have here. Hopefully it will help. Let me, let me look at Here's a metaphysic. God is the uncaused cause of our being. Here's the metaphorical. Underneath are the everlasting arms. Deuteronomy 33:27. One is giving us a metaphor, a, a, a simile, a way that we can comprehend the fact that God is an uncaused cause. That he is described using terms, hopefully, that we might be able to, to grab a hold of. That underneath are the everlasting, eternal arms of God. How about this? God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Here's a metaphorical. Who is like me and who can challenge me? And what shepherd can stand against me? Using the, the metaphor of a shepherd to describe the, the all-powerfulness of God. It doesn't mean that, that God is only as strong as a shepherd is. It's a descriptive term to help us understand the reality of who God is. <clears throat> These are some of the areas that sometimes we have problems in. How about God's omniscience? Hebrews 4.13 Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him in whom we must give account. The metaphorical, that God is able to see everything. But the descriptive term says God has eyes. But one of the things we said about God is He's immaterial. He's spirit. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have arms. He doesn't have eyes. But part of the way that God condescends to reveal Himself to us is to use metaphorical terms so that we can understand God sees me. So that we can understand God is strong and powerful. So that we can understand that God is eternal. Now where we get into trouble is when we... Uh, let me just go over the types of metaphor that, that are used throughout the Scripture in terms of dealing with the attributes of God and then the dangers of them. So the first one is what's called an anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. <clears throat> it depicts God in human form. That's what we were just talking about. Hands, eyes, 
depicts God in human form. Hebrews 4.13, we already talked about. Uh, 2 Chronicles 6.40. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now, the scripture tells us that God is spirit. He's, he doesn't have eyes, doesn't have ears. He is spirit. He's immaterial. But when we, when we describe him as God reveals himself to us, and we see the scripture talking, it says, open your eyes or God, see me. God, hear me, describing to us uh, the desire to have God hear and see. Or Deuteronomy 5.15, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Anthropomorphisms give God human uh, form so that we can relate to the actions that God's doing. Um, because we understand what's meant by an arm. We don't know how an immaterial being, a being who's all spirit, we don't, we don't know how to relate. So we are relating in anthropomorphic terms, humanistic terms. Make sense? Okay, the second type of metaphor is uh, anthropopathism. It is a compound of the two, same two Greek words, or not the same, but the first one, anthropos, which means man, and pathos, pathos, which means to suffer. Together they form the word anthropopathio, which means to have human feelings. So the second type of metaphor, remember I told you God is impassable. He's not ruled by his emotions. So we're, but we're going to attribute to God human emotions so that we can relate. Look what, what, look what I'm talking about. Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It helps us to relate to something that's going on within the nature of God. But the nature of God being spirit, God is not moved by his emotions. We're going to see God described as being angry. We're going to see things like God's wrath, right? We're going to look at all those things. We don't want to carry the human concept over. It's a way that God is relating the activity that he's doing to us in human terms. It, it'd be like if you had to communicate with a bunch of red ants. You have a pile of red ants that popped up on your middle of your, your garage floor. They come up through a crack. You're going to have to wipe them all out and get rid of them because they don't get to stay there. But before you get to wipe them all out and get rid of them, you have been commanded to communicate with them and tell them, why they need to move. Now, how are you going to be able to do that? You are transcendent. You are above, beyond. You can't communicate. So at whatever level that you're able to communicate the things that you need to communicate to those ants is, is less of a stretch than God Almighty communicating to us and describing to us. So when we come to these, these times where we use human emotions... To describe God, we never describe the negative aspect of those human emotions. They are intended to help us understand the activity that's going on with God. But it doesn't bring the, the if there was a sinful nature in it. We're going to talk about the jealousy of God. And then we're going to say, God's jealous? How can God be jealous? Well, we're using a human emotion to describe an activity of God. So that we can relate. Okay? It is metaphorical. It is not metaphysical. It's metaphorical. A way to help us relate 
but it's not descriptive of God's nature or being. It just describes an activity. Uh, Another one is the anthropoiesis, which is attributing to God human actions. You've all seen this one before. Genesis 6.6, And the Lord was sorry that He made man on the earth. He was grieved in His heart. Isaiah 43.25, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. But... Would that God might speak in Job eleven five through seven and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets part of your iniquity. When we talk about the being and nature of God, if God is all knowing, He cannot forget. What are we dealing with? We're dealing with describing in human terms an activity that's going on that transcends our ability to comprehend. So how does God deal with, it, with us? He, he deals with us in human terms so that we can get an idea. So though God has not lost the ability to know all things, He doesn't hold on to your sin anymore. It's gone. Or though God, the Scripture says God does not change. Then, but the Scripture says He changed His mind. But if God's all-knowing, how can He change His mind? If God's all-knowing, He can't change His mind. Metaphysically, God is immutable. He doesn't change. So in order to relate to us an action that takes place so that God can get across to us that which He wants us to understand, He utilizes human terms. Those human terms are metaphorical, not metaphysical. Metaphysical means they they comport with reality. Metaphorical means that they're an example, an illustration of an event that's taken place. So one does not impute reality onto the other. This is one of the areas where we struggle sometimes in the attributes of God. Understanding and comprehending the attributes of God with Scripture. So we want to recognize those times when the Bible is metaphorical. So what are the dangers? It says, uh, the Lord repented in Exodus 32.14. That can lead to the denial of His immutability. The, the eyes of him can lead to a denial that God is immaterial. Instead, it states that God must be material. He has eyes. He is the rock can lead to a denial of his infinity. God can't be uh, infinite because there's no possible way for there to be infinite rocks. God has to be immaterial for him to be infinite. If God is material then it has to have infinite parts. And if it has infinite parts, it's not simplistic. And if it's not simplistic, it can be divided. And that doesn't describe God. So when we talk about the attributes of God, Him being a rock can lead to the denial. God can't be infinite. When it says in Romans eleven two, whom He foreknew can lead to a, a denial of His eternal nature. Uh, the Lord became angry in 1 Kings 11 can lead to a denial of His impassibility. Oh, God's, God's mad at me. When it's descriptive of a way that God's dealing with us. Uh, the Lord came down to see can lead to a denial of His omniscience. God didn't know He had to come down and look. But what is it? It's metaphorical to describe an action that God is taking in order to relate to us. In order to relate to us. So, uh, the characteristics found in creatures that we attribute to God must first be purified of any imperfection or limitation and then applied to Him in an unlimited way. 
Any term that loses its meaning when stripped of its finitude cannot be applied to God literally, only metaphorically. To take metaphorical descriptions of God literally leads to heretical views of God. A heretical view of God is a view that the church has never held for the entire time that the church has been in existence. If we come up with a whole new way to see God, we're wrong. God did not leave the church for 2,000 years without the truth of who he is and what he's about, only for us to discover now. That's how cults become cults. They come up with concepts like that. And so we want to understand those differences, the differences between the metaphorical and the metaphysical. And we'll, we'll try to talk about those as we go. All right, so we're going to take a look at God's pure actuality and his simplicity. We kind of touched on them a little bit. By actuality, it is meant that which is in act or which is existence. This is in contrast to potentiality, that which can be or has a potential for existence. Pure actuality, then, is that which is existence with no possibility to not exist or to be anything other than it is. Existence, pure and simple. Pure actuality has no potential for non-existence. It has no potential for change. If it could change, then it would uh, have to go out of existence. Nothing can undergo the change to go out of existence unless it has potential. Pure actuality has no potential of any kind to say nothing of the potential to cease to exist. It is pure act, utter existence. Uh, many of the different attributes of God are going are gonna to overlap with this as we work our way through. So, what's the biblical basis for the idea? God exists independently of all things. Genesis 1.1 begins with what? In the beginning, God. So, in the beginning literally is before there was a beginning, God created from nothing the heavens and the earth. So when we look at that phrase, what does it mean? It means before anything was, God is. God is pure existence. He already existed. Colossians 1.17. He is before all things. He's before all things. He comes before all things and in him all things consist or are held together. Psalm 92 before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before there was anything, before there was a thought, before, as far back as you can go and beyond to everlasting, before anything else, you are God. It's, it is like the concept that we're going to talk about when we get there shortly, uh, the I am. Uh, I am means I exist. I am existence. I am transcendent, beyond, above, before all things. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. 
He is the beginning, the end, before and after for all time. Revelation 1.17 When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he said, he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am statement. I exist the first and the last forevermore. John 17.5 And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you. What's the next phrase? Before the world was. It's a clear declaration of deity from Jesus Christ to the I am, the existence one, the, the concept of God's pure actuality. He never didn't exist. He has always existed in the way that we know him revealed to us through scripture. John seventeen twenty four. Father, I desire that, that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So we see the relationship between Father and Son before creation. Eternally existent, the I Am. Revelation 13, 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him, whose names have not been written in the, in the book of life of the Lamb slain, from the foundation of the world. So the lamb slain from the foundation. Out of before the foundation was laid. The plans of redemption of mankind. Had already been laid. Had already begun. Again the, the eternal existence of God. Revelation 17.8. The beast that you saw was and is not. And will ascend. Out of the bottomless pit. And go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth, the earth dwellers, will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Again, before the foundation of the world, names were written in the Lamb's book of life. God wrote them because He is the preexistent. He is pure existence. God existed prior to and independently of anything else. All other things that exist depend on Him. While he depends on nothing for his existence. The second part, that's the God existing independently of all else. Now we see God gives existence to everything else. Everything else finds their existence in God. Remember it said that he is before all things and in him all things consist. He holds it all together. Again, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, what did he do? Created. What did he create? Everything else. Everything else. Genesis 1.21, so God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves uh, with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was very good. All of those creatures had their existence where? In God. He's the preexistent one. He's the one that brings about all other existence. John 1, 3. All things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. Who are we talking about in the Gospel of John? Talking about Jesus, right? Jesus, who is part of, or part of is probably a bad term, who is one God. All of God is in Jesus. Uh, Jesus is all of God. He is the creator, the preexistent one who brings all things into existence. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, 
All things were created through him and for him. So again, he is the uncaused what? Cause. He's the cause of everything else. The cause of everything else is himself uncaused. He is pure existence, the I am. Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor, a glory and honor and power, for you created what? All things. And by your will they exist and were created. Acts 17.25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life and breath and all things. Paul and Mars Hill, Acts 17. God doesn't need anything from us. He's pre-existent. Yes, ma'am. Did you not? Oh, he didn't do two on two. So you got every other page. Sorry, they're two-sided. So it only got copied on one side. Make you a copy that's not only on one side. Next time. Jason's got a copy on both sides. (laughs) <laughs> um, Romans eleven thirty six. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. First Corinthians eight six. Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Same idea, the uncaused cause, the only true uh, pre-existent, existent with, with no need uh, for anything from anything else to, to cause him to exist. He has in these last days, Hebrews 1, 2, spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the world. Uh, Hebrews 2, 10, for it is fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So we work our way through Scripture. One of the key things, and it's hard to see and really um, reconcile here, what we're laying out is is just single verses. Um, What you want to do with those when you have time is swallow them in bigger chunks. So, so I, I'm just trying to lay out the piece that says, look, he, he created, he exists, but we want to answer the question of, uh, of, of God's nature, then we, we take a bigger chunk. Biblical theology, we look at context, what the scripture's laying out for us and how the scripture's laying out so that we can uh, have a whole comprehension of what's going on. Uh, system, systematic theology, or what we're looking at right here, we're going to pull pieces out. Biblical theology looks at bigger chunks and, and asks a question out of whole books. What does Exodus teach us about the nature of God? What does Genesis teach us about the nature of God? You get what I'm saying? So when you got time, the, the best answer for us is to utilize the whole counsel of God, to be well equipped with every book, every page, every verse. The only way to do that is to read it. So we gotta we gotta pour ourselves into it. I'm gonna pull out pieces, but I don't want to I don't want to intimate that that's how you do this. I just want to give you the the concept and and why that's biblically based, and hopefully we can develop those other ideas further as we work our way through. 
So the concept that I want to get to is God is pure existence. God is I am. I am, not I was, I am. In Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you will say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The Yahweh. The I am that I am is, the, is where the Tetragrammaton springs from. The, the name of God, Yahweh, springs from the phrase, I am that I am. I am existence. Everything necessary. I am. I am He. Jesus, even Bart Ehrman, will point to John 8.58 and say that John 8.58 absolutely is a declaration that Jesus is God. John 8.58 they, the, the, the Jews say to, uh, to, to Jesus, uh, you're not yet 50 years old. How could you have been around for Abraham, right? You remember before Abraham was, Jesus says in verse 58, I am. He is declaring that he is the Yahweh. As though it's not enough that the psalmist declared that only Yahweh could open the eyes of the blind. And did Jesus open the eyes of the blind? So that means Jesus is... Yahweh, that the psalmist said, only Yahweh can stop the raging sea. And Jesus said, peace be still. And what happened? He stopped the raging sea. So Jesus is Yahweh over and over again. The Bible says in the Psalms, Psalm 23, who is the shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd, right? What's that word? Lord, capital L-O-R-D. What's it? It's Yahweh. Yahweh is the shepherd. John chapter 10. What did Jesus say? I am the good shepherd. Just in case you're not sure what he's saying. Because just prior he had told the man, why do you call me good? None are good except who? God. So over and over and over again, the profession that Jesus Christ is the I am. He is self-existent. He depends on no one else for his being. Doesn't need anyone else. It's the same idea of ultimate authorities, right? If the ultimate authority has another authority over it, it's not ultimate. In order to be ultimate, it's got to be self-authenticating, self-existing. The, the idea uh, that we're laying out. Okay, the, the theological basis. Hopefully this won't be too confusing as we put all the pieces together. But the idea is as we look at the attributes of God and we work our way through... One leads to another, leads to another, leads to another natural flow of thought as we pull out what the scripture says about God. So pure actuality follows or flows from God's uncausality that nobody created him. A pure actuality follows or flows from God's necessity. There's never a time God can't exist. If God didn't exist, there'd be nothing. Right? Because if he made all things and in him all things consist, and then he doesn't exist, what happens to everything else? It's gone. Or, yeah. And, and this can't even be a dream. Because if it never was, we couldn't have thought. So then we can get into my crazy philosophy class that had me pretty sure that I didn't exist and that nothing else was ever really going on in life. And you're not real and I'm not real and was pretty confused. By, by Freud, <laughs> Freud was something else. <clears throat> Don't even get me started on Freud. 
Then we have a historical basis. So I got the theological basis behind the concept. The biblical basis is primarily what I'm concerned with. And then in the historical basis, if you look at the notes, and I don't know if you have the page to it, but it'll start listing out the early church fathers. Augustine for the first one and Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, who's probably the first guy who developed uh, an apologetic method. He came up with the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and there's another one. I can't ever think of what it is. But if I do, I'll remind you. But So it just lists out what the early church fathers said about this concept. So you don't think, here we are in the 21st century and Jackie just come and pulling this stuff out of his hat. No, we, we look at Augustine in the 350s and he's, he's talking about these concepts. So the early church fathers in the, in the in the first couple of generations after the apostles, they've got these concepts already strung out as they lay out for us the ideas of the attributes of God. Okay, let's look at the simplicity of God or the idea that God is indivisible, that he's not made up of parts. Again, this is going to lead into the fact that he's immaterial, that God is spirit. Um, and, and, and these attributes are times when you're talking to Different people, specifically Jehovah, uh, Jehovah Witnesses, where the fact that God is spirit is answered to some of the questions that they have about the nature of, of God and some of the struggle that they have about him. So uh, it becomes foundational to build uh, some of those answers. So let's look at it. Simple means without parts. What has parts can come apart. God can't come apart. So he doesn't have parts. That hopefully is simpler than the last definition <laughs> that I gave everybody. Okay. Um, so God's simplicity means he is absolutely one. Not only does he have unity, the unity of God that we're going to see, but he is absolute unity. It is not oneness with manyness. It is oneness without manyness in his being, his essence. He is one in essence. These are going to be areas where the Trinity is going to wrap your noodle up. Remember how we started with incomprehensibility of God? That God is transcendent, holy other, bigger, greater than, than our minds are able to wrap around. If we, can, if we can put God in a little box and say, look, there he is. We have shown authority over who he is, his being and his attributes. Then he's not the ultimate authority. If he's the ultimate authority, he should be transcendent, right? He should be big. He should be majestic. He should not be simple to understand. Uh, There should be areas wherein we wrestle with the concept of who God is and, and how that works out in Scripture. So he is oneness without manyness in his essence, even though there is a plurality of persons. So we're going to talk about this over and over again. There is one God, one, what, three, whose. One what, three, whose. One essence, God. One. Monotheistic, absolutely confirmed in Scripture. Uh, and we're going to talk about those verses in just a minute. But three, whose. Doesn't change his essence. His essence is undivisible, indivisible. You can't divide him. You can't cut him into three pieces. 
Because then you would have what? Three gods. Simplicity of God is indivisible. He doesn't come apart. In his essence, he is three who's in one what? Okay, God's absolute unity. Let's look at it. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. It's the second time that word is used in Scripture. Well, it's the first time. Man and wife are joined together. Genesis chapter 2. Pretty early, right? Pretty early. So we're developing the concept of unity. The unity that God describes Himself in is a is metaphorically symbolized by marriage, right? A husband and wife are or become one flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. one. Same word, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. One in essence. One in essence is what we're talking about when we talk about God. Isaiah 37 16 through 20. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Shennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations in their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, save us from His hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You are Yahweh alone. One essence. One essence. One God. Over and over and over again, you're going to talk to Mormons, you're going to talk to Jehovah Witnesses, you're going to talk to Oneness Pentecostals, you're going to talk to people all over the place, and they're going to emphasize all these verses that are talking about the essence of God. And the essence of God is one. God is one. You have no argument for me. He is one. It does not absolve or change the fact that God is, in His unity, also a triunity. That you have... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all given the same attribute. All given the same attribute. So it brings around the definition. We'll talk about it more when we talk about the Trinity, which will not be this week or next week, but the week after that. We'll hopefully put all those things together for you so you can see them. Isaiah forty-five eighteen. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Malachi 2.10 Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Mark 12.29 quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Romans 3.30, Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There is one God, one God, one God, one God. There's, uh, scriptures replete 
with the unity of God. He is one in essence. One what? One God. And that one God's name is Yahweh. And he is expressed in three distinct persons. One God. It's evident through these verses that there is absolutely only one God. But if God is absolutely one, he cannot be divided into many gods. How many gods is he? One God. Combined with God's immateriality, he's spirit, so he doesn't have parts. He is spirit. This lends further support to his simplicity. Even though the Hebrew word for one, echad, leaves room for plurality of persons within the unity of substance. Uh, in a monotheistic and anti-polytheistic context in which it was used, there's no implication of a plurality of parts within a being. This would be tantamount to polytheism, not Jewish monotheism. So we have one unified God. So first we talk about God's unity. Next, let's look at God's immateriality. God is spirit. He doesn't have parts. If he doesn't have parts, he simply can't be divided into multiple parts. John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father has declared him. No one has seen. Why can't you see God? Because he's immaterial. He's spirit. He is spirit. What is the only... Oh, go ahead. Here comes the question. You're right. He he has, Jesus is unique above all other, I don't even know if I want to say things, above all others. Jesus uh, has two natures. It's called the hypostatic union. It means that God, a very God, Jesus Christ, added something to himself. What did he add to himself? He added humanity. So he has two natures. A divine nature with all the attributes of divinity that is not negated or lost in any way, but is limited by the addition of humanity. When we add humanity, we we now see what's talked about in Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 8, that who being in the very form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. The kenosis. He emptied himself. What, what, what is being spoken of by the emptying is not a subtraction of his deity, but the addition of his humanity. The addition of humanity limits uh, um, the expression of, of the deity of Christ. In other words, Jesus, as he walked on earth, we, we, he was not everywhere all the time like the father is right there is an emptying of the expression not an emptying of deity he still has to be fully god if he's not fully god then his sacrifice doesn't bridge the gap between god and mankind right he puts on man fully man so he can touch you 
He, he's fully God, so he can touch God. And he's able in his sacrifice to bridge the gap between fallen man and a holy God. And that's accomplished through the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. Which is where we're going to go when we talk about the divinity of Christ and the deity of Christ. And we, we read sections like we'll talk about maybe in Mark this Sunday where Jesus says, I don't know the hour. If God's omniscient, how can he not know the hour? Because he's speaking through his human nature. Through his human nature. So there, Jesus as God chooses to express himself through his human nature. And in his human nature, he does not know. In his divine nature, he does. Does Jesus know today? I think he does. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's in heaven awaiting the signal, go. So, but I think, I think in heaven, having ascended, resurrected, and gone to the Father, I think he, he expresses himself now through his divinity. Jesus says, now to the disciples, he just appears in a room. He doesn't have to walk through the door, right? There are expressions of his deity that are able to come through uh, even with his humanity post-resurrection. However, he is forever and always uh, in some way, don't like the term, so don't beat me up over it, limited because of the addition of humanity. In other words, he's always going to wear the flesh. He'll always have the scars. He, he will always be the lamb as though it had been slain, sitting at the throne of heaven, being worshipped by the, the four and twenty elders. So... In that way. So, so because of that, because of the addition of humanity and what theology calls a hypostatic union, the two natures, the duality of Christ, that's how that's worked out. And that's how God is expressed through that hypostatic union and the flesh that, that uh, Christ wears. Absolutely do. A divisible entity, but not in essence. Yeah, no, they see him as three separate, utterly separate in essence and personality. Yeah. Go ahead. No? No. It, it, it'll have more time to come out, I'm sure. <clears throat> the immateriality again of Christ. John uh, 4.24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him how? In spirit and in truth, right? The immateriality of God. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his what kind of attributes? Invisible, right? Immaterial. Are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made. Colossians 1.15, he, speaking of Christ, is the image of what? The invisible God, the incomprehensible God, the unknowable God. He is the firstborn, preeminent over all of creation. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. Invisible 
immaterial. Hebrews 12.9, same thing. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? So according to these verses, God is invisible, immaterial, and an immortal spirit. As such, he does not have temporal or material parts by which he could be divided or destroyed. Thus, as opposed to material things, he is simple. And as opposed uh, to temporal things, he is imperishable. Taken together, these passages strongly argue for the simplicity of God. He is indivisible. In essence, Almighty God. Then we have God's aseity. His self-existence. He does not rely on any other. Uh, The self-identity of God as the great I Am in Exodus 3.14 is a declaration of His self-existence. His pure actuality. When Moses asked for His name, God said, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Again, the name Yahweh, usually translated Lord in the Old Testament, is a contraction of I am who I am. Yahweh. <clears throat> Isaiah forty eighteen through 28. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare Him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. The silversmith with silver change. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their, shall their stock take root in the earth. When he will also blow on them, they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary? His understanding is unsearchable. The greatness, the majesty, the self-existence, the fact that God is totally other. Not in need of any other. Acts 17.25 we talked about already. He has need. Does he, he is not worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need anything from us to complete him. Revelation 4.11 You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they did exist. God always was, always is, always will be. He did not come into existence, neither will He go out of existence. He simply is existence. Then God is intrinsically immortal. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now to the King, eternal 
immortal, invisible. To God alone who is wise. 1 Timothy 6.16 Who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light. Whom no man has seen or can see. To whom be honor and everlasting power. Romans 1.20 For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. Romans 1.22 Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. God's immortality is intrinsic. Ours is extrinsic. God's immortality comes within Himself. Our immortality is a gift from Him. We're not immortal of ourself. We are immortal because He gives us that gift. He is immortal because it springs forth out of Him. The doctrine of God's simplicity is based... On all the verses supporting his unity, his immateriality, his pure actuality, and his immortality. Everything else that exists is from him. And what exists is material, it is multiple, and it is destructible. God cannot be any of these since he is their cause. Um, In the notes you can look through the theological basis. Uh, where the concepts flow through and the historical basis again the early church fathers laid out for you i I only laid out the early church fathers for the first four centuries uh there's early church fathers that go all the way to the 1500s and then i would have 700 pages of notes and i might as well just give you my books so instead of that i just give you the early the first four centuries of early church fathers that you can look through and see. So, our conclusion for for these first two attributes, and we'll look at the rest again next week. God's pure actuality is fundamental to the classical Orthodox view of God. From it, all other basic metaphysical attributes are derived. It has a firm basis in Scripture and theology, and its expression in history in the history of the church. It is virtually unanimous from the beginning to the modern times uh, with the rise of liberal process theology. Simplicity or the indivisibility of God is also a fundamental attribute of classical theism. Simplicity undergirds not only many of the other crucial attributes of God, but also all the other doctrines based on them. Despite uh, its its rejection by contemporary process thought, which is neo-theism. Uh, this attribute is based in solid biblical and theological arguments and has a long and venerable tradition from the patriarchs through the medievals into modern times. Both Catholic and Protestant alike have defended the doctrine. Although challenges continue to surface up to the present, no one has demonstrated its philosophical incoherence or its lack of biblical and theological foundation. So, the new theism, anti-theism, atheism, all those guys will deny various attributes of God. But classical theism does not. So that gives us like an introduction to where we're going with the doctrine of God. And we'll, we'll, as we work through the, 
the attributes. One's going to lead to another that overlays another that overlays another that's going to lead us all the way through. You'll notice, I think, the last of the attributes we're going to, we're going to talk about is uh, the unity and triunity of God. So hopefully we'll bring all those things together when we talk about the Trinity and the deity of Christ. Again, these are the two areas you're going to be attacked in. If somebody's going to have a problem, uh, I don't care. You pick the person you're going to provide an apologetic to. They're going to attack the Bible, and they're going to attack God. Your, your view of, of who God is, the God of the Bible, and how he is expressed. Those are the areas that we need to lay the foundation in. Hopefully, we can hold on to it, comprehend it. The, the way we comprehend it is you got to chew on it, mull it over like chewing the cud, right? Meditate on these things. Open up the Word. Chew on the concepts that God's Word lays out for us so that we can uh, uh, bring together those concepts, bring together those ideas, meld it together in the definitions uh, that are given by theology so that we can stand on that foundation. Anybody have any questions? Comments? Shoot. Three gods. Uh-huh. Wrong. Wrong. So uh, there's really what happens when we look at when we study the Trinity, and we look at the the definition of the Trinity and how that works. What you have is a variety of church councils that get together to deal with the question over and over and over again, because it's a difficult concept, right? The Bible's very clear: only Yahweh creates. Only Yahweh creates. But we see that, that Jesus Christ is responsible for the creation of the world, right? And we see that the Holy Spirit is responsible for creation and, and, and of the world. And we see that the Father is responsible for creation of the world. So we have to reconcile there is only one God in essence and that there are three persons given the, the or accomplishing the, the work of the one God. So how do we reconcile that? So the church has wrestled with it for a long time. So from that sprang uh, a heresy called modalism. Modalism, it says there's one God, um, but it doesn't keep the three distinct persons. So what modalism says is God functions in different modes. So sometimes he's the son, and then sometimes he's the father, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. But he's not all three at the same time. And that was called modalism. So the church would get together and, and, and try to lay out the definition of the Trinity. Let's, let's lay out the definition of the Trinity. So they're working on the definition of the Trinity and wrestling with the concepts. And so somebody would say, well, how about like this? And they describe modalism. And then the church would look in the words, study the scripture, and decide yes or no. Nah, that's not going to work. That's, that limits... That, that limits uh, um, God and the expression of, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that Jesus did what he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. If God's only one being at one time in a different mode, then how did Jesus do the things he did? The scripture said that the Holy Spirit anointed him for ministry and empowered him for what he did. When Jesus was standing on earth and praying, was he praying to an empty heaven just to uh, give an example to us? Or was there a father there listening when Jesus was at the baptism, right? And he baptized, goes under the water and the heavens open and a voice comes from heaven from the father saying, this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. So, so that didn't fit with the concept of modalism. So as they work their way through, through church history, um, and they would, you're going you're gonna to see those things happen. So they're going to have a definition like tritheism. Tritheism emphasizes the three persons, but loses the, one, the single essence. Um, the Trinity holds a single essence and maintains the three persons. And there's a, a, a lot of definitions that, as I said, the church struggled through all the way through. Still today, there are churches that deny the Trinity and the concept of the Trinity. Uh, one this Pentecostals uh, that, that uh, basically hold to modalism. That God functions in modes and, and th- this is how he's expressed. So they emphasize the oneness, but, but not the plurality. So, so as we work our way there, the definition currently within the church today does both. It, it emphasizes this, the one in essence and the, the plurality of persons eternally existent in the one God. So that's how that definition comes. So, so all the others spring out of the history of the church trying to wrestle with a concept. How do we make this work? And for different churches, that's why some churches, for some churches, Trinity is not essential. It's not one of the essential doctrines because there's, a, there's, there's struggle with the concept. Um, the downside to not making the Trinity essential is it leads to the deity of Christ not being essential and and that's a problem. That whole Jesus saying, unless you believe that I am, which is a declaration of I am Yahweh, you die in your sins, that becomes a problem. Problematic for that concept. So hopefully, as we, when we get to the point of the Trinity, we'll be able to tie in some of the history so we can see where those discussions went through in the church councils and how they came to, to where they are today. Anybody else? Cool. Feel free to holler at me afterwards and and scream at me. Jason's chomping at the bit to start to arguing, but we got to nail a couple other things down before we can get to the arguing part. So uh, so hopefully we'll be able to develop those things as we go. If you need, uh, obviously you're going to need more copies. Jason's got the ones that he can make of both sides if you want both sides of the notes. If you only want half of the note, yeah, if you only want half of the notes, that's okay too. And, and again, don't forget, hit up Levi for the other pages of the other stuff if you want it. And I think on the website are the tapes of the last, this will be the third one, that are available if you want to listen again to what we discussed tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for this time. We thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together. Lord, we pray that as we work our way through the concepts, that we would just understand the majesty and the beauty and the 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 transcendence of almighty god that he is that you oh oh god are are beyond uh, our comprehension that you are big but you have revealed yourself to us in a variety of ways so that we can have the understanding that you would have us have of you so lord god we just pray that you would enlighten us guide us by your spirit open our eyes to your word And as we go from this place, I pray that you give us a hunger to know and to understand um, these fundamental issues of Scripture. And we give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Go in peace.